Oh, Father, that is our prayer, that we need you. We need you so these next 40 minutes would not be a waste of time. I need you that I might preach your word humbly and boldly and faithfully and truly. We need you that we might have ears to hear all that you mean to speak to us. We need you if we are to see your glory, if we are to know your presence. And so we pray that you would come and you would help us now as we know you are eager to do and we know that your word never returns empty or void. And so accomplish all that you have for us, for our good and your glory. In Jesus we pray, amen. We come tonight to our continuing series in the book of Exodus, and tonight we are in Exodus chapter 33, Exodus 33. I'll be reading the whole chapter for us, this chapter right in the middle of the golden calf episode where Moses is going to make an audacious request of the Lord. Exodus 33, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not Go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. 
Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen Exodus is about the God who makes himself known from the very beginning God has been making himself known to Moses to Pharaoh to the Egyptians to the Israelites, he has been revealing who he is, his name, his character, what he is like, what he wants in obedience. He has shown himself to be the God of power, the God of signs and wonders, the God of grace and glory. But none of this matters. All that God has revealed to his people, if he is not also the God who is there. Some of you may recall that's a title of a Francis Schaeffer book back in the 1960s. D.A. Carson also wrote a book by the same title a few years ago, The God Who Is There. It sounds sort of odd, yet it's communicating something significant. Not the God who is absent. Not the God who is indifferent. Not the God who is far off. Not the God of the deists, perhaps the God who does not see or the God who does not intervene or even the God who does not care, but rather the God who is there or the God who is here. What we have in this passage is the threatening and then the unveiling of the blessing of God's presence. You know, sometimes when we pray for people, we just offer up a quick prayer, Lord, be with them, be with so-and-so. And it can be sort of a lame prayer if we don't give it a lot of thought, just sort of, God, here's a bunch of people, you connect the dots, just you and them, do good stuff. But if we really have a fully orbed view of God's revelation and his covenant that there is almost nothing richer and deeper and better than you can pray for someone. Lord, be for them in this moment. This moment of surgery, this moment of diagnosis, this moment of loss, this moment of despair, this moment of depression, this moment of fear. Be for them the God who is there. Just his presence. Some of you who are moms and perhaps your kids are grown and out of the house you understand this how much a mom likes it when all of the kids are back under one roof you spend decades and decades saying when will i have all of these kids not under one roof and they start to disperse and then you turn around and they're not there and there's almost nothing that warms your heart as much as just having them there and sometimes as kids, we say, well, mom, why do you, we're not doing anything except all getting angry at each other and crowded all in one place. And I think moms and dads too hardly know how to even communicate just the blessing of presence. You're, you're all here. Think how you feel after you've been away from your spouse 
I've uh, maybe commented before that on those rare occasions when my wife is the one who's gone for a day or traveling away, visiting someone, and, and I have to have the kids by myself for 24 hours. Huh. I play on repeat that song that some of you of uh, my generation or older will know, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. Look it up. It's a good song because uh, you, you, you miss the one you love when they're away. Think of the fun that it is for you and your best friend to head out on that spring break or that summer road trip. And, you know, you don't even know what you're doing and it hardly matters where you're going. You're just together. And so we have the blessing of God's presence, the God who is with us. Way back in chapter 2, when the people were suffering and they cried out to God for deliverance, remember before he sent the plagues, before he raised up a deliverer, what we read at the end of Exodus 2, said that God heard their suffering, God remembered his covenant, and God knew. He knew. He saw. He understood. He would be with them. And now, the question paramount in chapter 33 is this actually so? Will he really be with them? See, the problem facing the Israelites is that the God who brought them up out of Egypt can no longer bear to be with them. This is what we see in verse 1. Depart, go up from here. Now, I will give you the land. I will send an angel before you, but I can't go with you, verse 3, or I will consume you. The idolatry with the golden calf was catastrophic. Remember Moses' response, he smashes the tablets, he grounds up the calf, he rebukes Aaron. And the Lord's response was even more dramatic. Kill the ringleaders, send a plague. This sin must be dealt with. And now we have the Lord saying, I cannot go with you into the promised land. This was an act of judgment, also an act of mercy, because he says, if I go with you, it will be the death of you. You're a stiff-necked people. The plot line, I'm convinced, from the garden to the garden city in Revelation. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? And so he says, I promised I would give you Canaan. And I'm a God of my word and I will give you Canaan. I have not forgotten the covenant with your fathers. I will give you a good land, that famous description, a land flowing with milk and honey. You could translate it oozing with milk and sap. As the Veggie Tales taught us, sounds sticky, but it was a sign of great abundance and prosperity. I will drive out the peoples and I will make good on my promise. But then in a twist, he says, I will send an angel, verse 2, but I can't go with you. Phil Riken in his commentary has this great line, they were still booked for the promised land, but God had canceled his reservation. That's the predicament they're facing. Look at the people's response upon hearing this news. Promised land, yes. God with you, no. They do two things. First, verses four through six, they mourn. The people heard this disastrous word. Do not underestimate what a disastrous word this was. Now, if we're honest, some of us would think, well, you know, um, eh, bummer, 
God's done a lot of good things for us, but hey, we got the promised land. We got a lot to look forward to. Let's be on our way. But they understand what is truly at stake to lose the very presence of God. What does all of this reward, what does this promised land mean if God is not with you? Perhaps you've heard the provocative question from John Piper before. Heard him ask it a few different times in his sermons. He asked the question, if you could have heaven with all of your family, with all of your friends, with all of your favorite food and none of the pounds, and you could have beautiful sunsets and golf and beaches and mountains and fishing and whatever you're into, and you could have all of that for eternity. But Jesus was not there. Would you take it? Now, granted, the question is slightly unfair because every good and perfect gift comes from God, and we would not have those gifts apart from God, but yet it's a provocative thought, isn't it? How many of us, if we know them, we know the right answer, but if we're honest, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of good stuff. Are we content with the gifts, whether we have the giver or not? For many, many people, most people in this country, and perhaps even many or most in our churches, that is exactly what they want. The promises of God without a burden of the relationship with God. Or they think of it as a burden. God, if I can get all the good things, I can get my get out of hell free card, and I can be sure that I'm going to heaven, and I can have some of my friends and family there, and I look forward to all those good things. Yeah, relationship with you, whatever. I mean, what, you know, whatever the prayer I have to pray, whatever the, the card I need to punch to get on that train into that place, I'm good. But we don't much think about God himself as the reward. So even the Israelites, for all of their sinfulness and rebellion, at least they understand this. This truly was a disastrous word. Promised land, yes. God with you, no. That's not a good deal. The second thing they do, strangely, it's mentioned several times, they take off their ornaments. The text explains they did so because God asked them to. Ornaments refer to not Christmas ornaments, but any kind of jewelry, fancy adornments, it's partially because they're entering into a period of mourning. We might say you, you put on wear, wear black to a funeral or the familiar biblical refrain of sackcloth and ashes. This is take off your bling. This is a time of mourning. It may also be that ornaments had an association with idolatry. In Genesis 35, Jacob leads his family in a covenant renewal ceremony at Bethel. And in doing so, he tells them, put away all your foreign gods, take out the rings that were in your ears. That is your adornments, your fancy, idolatrous ornaments. And notice the word at the end of verse 6, onward. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Would that suggest that this was more than just a period of mourning, but there was something about these particular ornaments that were associated with the world, perhaps with where they had come from in Egypt. And so this may be a hopeful sign that there is some true repentance here, that they're going to be away from these ornaments from this point onward. So they mourn. They have some moment, at least, of contrition because they realize that God will not go with them. 
Do you see the thick irony here? Remember the sin? The golden calf. What did they want? They wanted a God they could see. And now God says, you wanted a God that you can see? I told you I'm not that sort of God. And you will not get more of that sort of God. You will get less of me. See, they thought we'll make a golden calf and we'll get more of God on their own terms. And now they're threatened of less of God than they already had. Mark this very well. Idolatry is always the pursuit of short-term gain for the assurance of long-term loss. Idolatry is the pursuit of short-term gain for the assurance of long-term loss. They thought we are so smart. We put in this gold, out came this golden calf. We can see God. We can dance around him. We can worship him. There he is. There's a short-term gain. And now they have the prospect of a very long-term loss that this God that they wanted to see is the invisible God and he will not go with them. We see an example in verses 7 through 11 of the loss of God's presence. Now, if you were paying attention when I read this, you may have thought, well, this is a little bit strange because the story makes sense, verses 1 through 6, and then it seems to pick up again with Moses' intercession in verses 12 and following. But why this strange interlude about the tent of meeting and Moses is going out and the people are worshiping at their tent and the cloud descending? What does this have to do with the story, this little bit of background information? Well, it may look like a strange out-of-the-place explanation that interrupts the drama, but it's actually an important illustration of God's diminished presence among the people. Remember what we had in the chapters immediately before the golden calf. We had all of those chapters, remember, of how the tabernacle was to be constructed and the elaborate uh, furniture inside, and the priestly ordination, and their robes, and all that would happen with the worship of God at the tabernacle there dwelling in the midst of the people. Now, the tabernacle has not yet been built. That's what we'll pick up with in chapter 35 and following. We've had the instructions. It's not been built. Interrupted is this sin with the golden calf. What was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was the symbolic manifestation of God's presence with them in the middle of the camp. And so that's why we have this business now about the tent of meeting. It's not, this is not the tabernacle. The tabernacle is sort of a temporary temple, and the tent of meeting is like an even further temporary tabernacle. And so the tabernacle was meant to represent God's presence with the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies dwelling in the midst of the people with three tribes on the north and the east and the south and the west. But now we read that Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. Do you see the emphasis? Far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent. Do you see over and over the emphasis there? This is not the tabernacle. This is not God dwelling in the midst of his people. This is God's presence far off, outside. They have to go outside the camp. And who meets with him? Doesn't dwell there for all the people. They have to stay at a distance from their tents, just like when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. No, only Moses can go God was meant to permanently dwell in the midst of the people, but this is a temporary tent outside the camp. 
The tabernacle would have sacrifices of atonement. Priests and Levites would attend the work. The Ark of the Covenant would inhabit it. And it would be the spiritual center of Israel's life. But here we have a tent that is far off because the camp has been tainted by sin. And so the only one who can do this business with God is Moses. There seems to be only one Israelite who is still on intimate terms with Yahweh. He talks to God face to face as a man with his friend. Joshua stands guard at the tent at all times. No one else may come. Do you see what's happening? The God who is there is now the God who is over there, far off. The Israelites, if they're to make their way to the promised land, will they have to do it without the one who made the promises in the first place? Will God dwell in their midst How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? This looks like the tabernacle's not going to make it. But once again, Moses intercedes. He makes, in verses 12 and following, three requests. Number one, verses 12 through 14, he says, please be with me. He says, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know who you will send. So this is a reference back to verse 2, where it reads, I will send an angel before you. This is Moses' way of saying, angel, what? I don't want an angel. I want you to be with, I don't know who this angel is. And so he makes a petition. He makes a petition based on what God has already said. Do you notice how many times in these verses we have the verb know? See, Moses is is. Speaking back to God what he's already spoken to him. You have not let me know who you will send me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. Please show me your ways, verse 13, that I may know you in order to find favor. And did you notice also the preponderance of this word favor? It occurs five times in these verses and following. Verse 12, I know you by name and and you have also found favor in my sight. That's what you've told me. Verse 13, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please now show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Again in verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? Verse 17, this is the very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. Moses is saying, look, you know me. You said you know us. You said we were your favored people, and if we have found favor in your sight, then show me your ways, he asks in verse 13. That is, knowing God is not a process of mystical osmosis. To know God is not ultimately some mystical experience or encounter. When Moses wants to know God, he says, show me your ways. That is, let me know your laws, your statutes, your word. And God says to him, my presence will go with you, verse 14, and I will give you rest. Jesus, centuries later, would say the same, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the first petition he makes, please be with me, and the Lord says, all right, I will be with you, and I'll give you rest. But there's a second petition in verses 15 and 16. He says, not only please be with me, okay, that's good. I found favor in your sight. God and Moses are are on good terms. But then he goes one step further and he says, please be with us. 
If your presence, verse 15, will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses, in other words, is saying, okay, let's, let's, we, we talked about you and me, Lord. Let's talk about us. What makes us distinct as a people? What distinguished Israel? What made them the chosen people? Their land? Well, as of this point in the story, they had none. Their pedigree? Well, until a few months ago, they were a slave people. Their obedience? Well, that was hardly any crowning achievement for them. No. What made them a chosen people? What set them apart from all the other nations of the earth? It was this, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? That's ultimately what makes us different, we hope, as Christians, as God's people. We'd like to say, well, we always act better than the world. We don't. We'd like to say that we're always more helpful and loving than the world. We're not. But this is abundantly and permanently true that God is with us. We want to be special. Moses and the people wanted to be special, and here is their ultimate distinction. Do some of you have those, those plates that uh, my wife has some, and we've given them as gifts, received them as gifts, the big red plate that says, you are special. Some of those you are special plates. Uh, you pull it out for birthdays or you hold it out as a reward. As a kid gets older, it amazingly has less of an appeal to have a plate that says you are special, but there it is. Is that what you get? Congratulations. Plates. What really sets you apart? What makes them distinct? Here's what they have that matters more than anything else. God, the God, is their God. Our God, this covenant promise to be a God to you and to your children after you. So Moses says, be with me. And then he says, okay, that's where, what, but you need to be with us. That's what makes us your people. We're not your people because we have a promised land. Anybody can have a land. What makes us special is that you're with us. And then he makes one other petition, even more audacious. Please be with me, okay? Please be with us. And now he says in verse 17 and following, please show me your glory. You see that at the end of verse 18. Now Moses had already seen plenty of the Lord's glory, but he wants a fuller picture as much as he can handle. He wants more than a lightning bolt or a cloud. He wants to see God like he talks to God, that is face to face. But of course he cannot get a full on sight of God in his glory. I'll let you see the shadow from the sun, but you cannot stare directly into the sun. That's the gist of what the Lord says. You stare directly into the sun, you're going to hurt yourself. But the sun will shine, and if you turn and look, you can see the shadow of the sun. Now, we don't know exactly what it means in verse 23. I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back or my backside I think it's probably just a figure of speech to mean you won't see my face. 
of course, God is invisible, so it's not that Moses is actually seeing a, a large divine back go past him, but it simply means, no, you can't see my face. Jeremiah eighteen seventeen, God says he will show them his back and not his face on the day of their disaster. Now, it wasn't a physical judgment. It was a way of saying, I'm not going to give you that full blessing of seeing my face. Now notice, we think of this prayer, show me your glory, as Moses asking to see something. And perhaps in his mind, he thought he could see something. But if you know your Bibles, you know that usually we see by hearing. Sight in the Bible comes through the ears. And so here the Lord shows his goodness by not actually showing Moses anything. He shows his goodness by speaking two things. First, verse 19, he speaks his name. Do you see the connection? I will make all my goodness pass before you. I wonder if Moses was thinking, okay, all right, put the goggles on. This is going to be shock and awe. This is going to be pyrotechnics. I was there on Mount Sinai, stuff quaking and rumbling and what is this going to be to see God face to face? But when God says, I will show you my glory, what does he do? He speaks. Don't ever think that God speaking in his word is somehow a consolation prize. So he says, I will cause my goodness to pass before you and how I will proclaim before you my name. The divine name, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. I will give you my name. I am that I am. And then the second thing in verse 19, he makes a declaration of his character. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The God who makes himself known, the God who is there, is fundamentally a God of sovereign grace. Now keep your finger there, and before we wrap this up, you, you have to see how Paul uses this verse, Exodus thirty-three nineteen, in Romans 9. Turn to Romans 9. Romans 9, a glorious and a difficult passage as Paul is talking about the doctrine of election. Because Israel there was thinking about how can this be we're God's chosen people and we don't seem to be inheriting the promises. And part of Paul's argument is no, Israel is inheriting the promises, but it's true Israel, it's spiritual Israel, it's Israel who has faith, not just ethnic Israel. And in order to make this point about the offspring, the true offspring of Abraham, he talks about election. And so he says, this example of Jacob and Esau, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, the older will serve the younger, before they had done anything good or bad, in order that the purpose of election might stand, God chooses. And then verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Fair question, it sounds like. Well, what do you mean? He just decides before they had done anything good or bad? In eternity past, he, he makes this sovereign decree. How can that be fair? Shouldn't God have sort of weighed in the balance? Well, Jacob has 34 blessing points and Esau has 31 blessing points, so I'm going to give Jacob the love. Well, this could set us into a discussion for the rest of the evening about understanding God's sovereignty and election and reprobation, but 
just notice the argument that Paul wants to make here in verses 14 and 15. Is there injustice? By no means. So Paul says, of course not. No injustice on God. Okay, how do you substantiate that claim, Paul? How can that be so? Well, he quotes then from Exodus. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, Paul's answer to the question, is there injustice? Is to say, of course there is no injustice because God is true to his character. We may say, well, I don't know if God is true to our American ideals. Not interested. There is no justice because in the sovereign decree of election, God is true to his own identity. He is true to reveal his own glory. That's why he quotes from Exodus 33. So go back to Exodus and see this familiar line with perhaps new eyes. Now it's true that many people struggle with the doctrine of predestination. Maybe some of you. It's a hard existential doctrine to embrace. It takes a lot of time. It takes sometimes years to study the text. And some of you may be just at beginning points of that journey. I understand. But what I want you to see here in Exodus is that we cannot set aside the sovereignty of God as just a, a secondary or tertiary doctrine. Just something that we can sort of just put aside. And if, if you have a God who's sovereign or not, it's just one of those lesser things. No, no, no. Because remember Moses' prayer. Show me your glory. And the Lord does two things. He says two things. One, my name, the Lord. Second, I'm sovereign. You want to know my glory? You want to see me? Face to face, you want to come right up to my very eyeballs of my glory. Then you need to know that I'm a God who has mercy on whom I will have mercy. If you want to see my glory, you need to know me as the God of sovereign, free grace. God's sovereignty in dispensing his mercy his free decision to show undeserved mercy on whom he will show mercy is not simply a reformed or a Presbyterian doctrine. It is not a minor point. It is essential in describing and defining what it means for God to be God. The freedom of God to dispense his mercy to whomever he pleases apart from any constraint outside of his own will and character is the very essence of what it means for God to be God. To be otherwise is to be someone else and something else than God. That is his name, Yahweh, to be the I am. For God to be God, he must be merciful and he must be sovereign. If you take away his mercy, if you take away his sovereign dispensing of that mercy, he is something else than God. Both teach us something indispensable about God. He is gracious, and that grace is absolutely free grace. So Moses says, show me 
your glory. And the Lord says to Moses, all right, I'll give you my name and I will declare to you my sovereign character. And in that mini sermon, you see my glory. This God of glory, this God of goodness, this God of grace, now with Moses having interceded on behalf of the people, would now go with them. And so he says, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. And I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And what we'll come to next week in chapter 34 is a renewal of the covenant, new tablets. And again, Moses will descend and he will have this time the, the glow, the afterglow of having met with the Lord face to face. And he will pray again to find favor in his sight that the Lord would go with them and pardon their iniquity and forgive their sins and go with them, this stiff-necked people, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he had foretold. Not because he is a God who changes his mind, but because he is a God who will have mercy on whomever he will have mercy, even upon the most stiff-necked people. So this is a passage filled with nothing less than the character of God in the very heart of the gospel. Emmanuel, God with us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Or Jesus to Mary and Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? John 14, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to them, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What a privileged place we have, not only to be hid in the cleft of the rock, but much more than that, to see with the eyes of faith, the very face of God and the person of Jesus Christ. What we need as a church, perhaps more than anything else, is what we have already been promised, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with us and he will never leave us nor forsake us. We need to know the God who makes himself known and the God who makes himself known is the God of sovereign grace and glory. And when you have a picture of this God, not a God you can manage, not a God you can tame, not a God who fits into all of your categories, not a God that would probably be elected president, but the God of the Bible with all of his edges, with all of his bigness, with all of his sovereignty. When you have that God, then you see what a tremendous miracle and mystery and blessing it is that that God would not be over there, but be the God who is here with us. Let's pray. Father, Moses prayed to see your glory. And now we, with inestimable privilege, can say that we have seen your glory in the face of your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You move, O oh Lord, in mysterious ways. But we thank you that through your revealed word, you have shown us who you are, in your character, in your glory, 
and in your free grace. And so we worship. In Jesus we pray, amen.